This morning we'll be continuing in our, um, in our sermon series, uh, The Go Mission, Global-Minded Christianity Part 2 today. And if you have your Bibles and you'd like to uh, turn with uh, me to Luke chapter 24. Last week uh, we looked at the emphasis in Luke 24 on uh, gospel-oriented. The, global, the Go Mission is gospel-oriented mission, that our mission has to be centered on an understanding of the whole gospel. And in that, we have to know that God had a plan from the beginning of time, and that God is working all things together through the testimony of the scriptures that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, that we have confidence and that he is working in our lives. And today, we're going to spend some time in Luke 24, here at 44 through 48, and look at the, the global outreach part of the mission, that we have to be gospel-oriented, and now we have to be global, we have to reach to the globe, we have to go to the furthest parts of the world to take the whole gospel. It's the whole gospel taken by the whole church to the whole world. In Romans fifteen four, Paul reminds us that for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So through faithfulness, through obedience, and through the, the testimony of the scriptures, we might have hope that God has indeed set all things in order. He does have a plan. It began with creation. It climaxed at the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and then it will culminate in the return of our Savior one day. The Bible makes it clear that in Ephesians we see that, a, that God had a purpose, an ultimate purpose, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, to the praise of his glory. And we must remember that in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it tells us, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. So in Luke 24, we want to turn our eyes and our hearts to some of the last words that Christ shared with his disciples before he ascended on high. It says, in, sorry, in verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And verse 49 says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Today we live in, a, in an age of doubt and ambivalence to the truth. We have uh, new atheism movements popping up. We have the postmodern mindset. We, we have relativism, the new tolerance movement. And we need to raise up authentic believers that understand and are confident and bold about the truth of the whole gospel. When we find this boldness, when we find this understanding in the gospel, we will find confidence that will be attractive to the world. They will wonder why we can know what we know, why we can be sure of the things that have been instructed to us in scriptures. We were reminded last week that we, we live in a world that is characterized by the HIV pandemic, terrorism, poverty, persecution of Christians, fragmented families, political and religious wars, postmodern mindset, oppression of children, neglect of the disabled, and many other injustices. The question we have is, do we really believe that the gospel provides the answers we desperately need and they desperately need? Do we understand 
as a church that the gospel is a message of reconciliation to the world, of suffering, brokenness, and violence. And so when we come to the scripture and we come to our text this morning, where, where do we find ourselves? Do we understand the whole gospel? Have we understood it in a way that we know Christ? Have we seen Christ? Have we been changed by Christ? And has that caused a response in us that we must then therefore proclaim this good news to the, to the world? As I was considering this week of this message that Jesus said to his disciples here, and at the end he says, verse 48, you, specifically his 12, are witnesses of these things. You've witnesses. Now you are my ambassadors. You must go forth and, and tell them. And let's consider these uh, that, that stood before him. These men who, uh, the, most of them, were overlooked by the time that, uh, of their age from most of the rabbis. They would have missed the opportunity to go off to further education, went right into the family trade, and, to, and, um, and were, were past the, the age most men would have been taken to, to higher education, to further pursuits. And Jesus came and collected a group of, of men who others overlooked. And he spent three years with them. But in those three years, they failed to understand what he was talking about time and time again. How many times did Jesus say, oh, you have little faith. Have I not been with you so long? And from moment to moment, after watching him feed the 5,000 or calm the seas or heal the, the sick or, or even raise the dead, that they still yet doubted at times. And the, they uh, ultimately fled from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they hid out in fear of their own lives. These men were characterized many times by doubters and cowards. And yet, here at this moment, when Christ says, you are my witnesses, he has enlisted them, he has empowered them, he's equipped them, and we see that they will be equipped with the Holy Spirit in verse 49. And these men then go on to, to have seen the risen Lord, to understand the risen Lord, and it re- results in a change that explodes and flips the world upside down, that 2,000 years later we're still considering the work that these men began, and we're taking their words that they penned for us in the scriptures and proclaiming to you because they speak of truth, they speak of life, they speak of God's plan to us. Consider what John said in 1 John chapter 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John, the youngest of the apostles, is writing years later saying, I am testifying to you of the truth of things that I have seen and how they have changed my life. Luke, we read again in his prologues, was right that he gathered, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from times past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have a certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He writes that we might have a certainty that when we read it, that they have a change, that we can know that we know that we know that what is written, what has been proclaimed is truth from these eyewitness accounts. And I, I do want to just spend a few moments looking at Peter's testimony in 2 Peter chapter 2, 
chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there. But I want you to consider that Luke says he has written these things that we might have a certainty concerning these things. John writes, I have seen these things, I proclaim these things, that you might have fellowship with God and fellowship with us. And then Peter writes, again in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, for we did not follow, and sorry in verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for we, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I read this to you because Peter has become the leader of this group that were once doubters and cowards, and now they're proclaimers of truth. Now they're standing in the city squares and preaching the gospel and seeing thousands come to Christ. What changed these men? It's a certainty of knowing the whole gospel, that God had a plan from the beginning, and he is working all things together for his good, for his purpose, and pointing all things to Christ, and that there's a hope that Christ is returning someday, and that these men were proclaiming this. They're they're changed, that their lives went from cowards to perseverance, to victory, to, to men who stood the test of time, who, who endured the worst afflictions that they might bring to us the truth of the gospel. These men understood that they weren't to just stay in their little town and stay in their little local church, but they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And uh, many of us know the accounts of these 12 apostles, but I'd like to read through them briefly as we consider what these men did and how their lives were changed so that we might see in order for us to understand that when we see the gospel and we accept the gospel and we truly understand the gospel, our lives will be changed. We will go beyond our own abilities. We will go beyond our own comfort zones and we will see the need to take this message to all peoples around the world. Starting with Peter, he was crucified upside down in Rome. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded He was the first of the twelve to die. John, son of Zebedee, there's no record of his death. He is believed to be the only one to have died of a natural cause. Although the church history and church tradition says that he was attempted to be killed by boiling in oil, but he survived and was then exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified upon a diagonal or X-shaped cross. Philip was crucified. Bartholomew was flayed alive and then beheaded. Matthew killed by a halibird. Thomas was killed by a spear in India. James, son of Elphias, beaten to death with a club after being crucified in stone. Jude was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Matthias, the replacement for Judas, was stoned and then beheaded. I read you these things because these men met... An ultimate death, they paid an ultimate price. But how do these men who were doubters and cowards turn into martyrs? Because they had confidence of the truth of the gospel. They saw the risen Lord. They understood that he was a fulfillment of God's 
original plan from the beginning of all time, and that today, when we come and understand the whole gospel, that we too have the opportunity to live for this Christ, to be filled with the Spirit, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. When we understand the gospel in this ways, our only response is, I want to live for you. I want to follow you no matter where that is. Last week we looked at Christopher Wright's statements that it is so important that if we want to make disciples, we must first become disciples. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Let me read that again. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Can we say that our knowledge of Christ and our acceptance of the gospel gets us to the place where we say, yes, I want to know him more and I want to share in his sufferings. Oftentimes we are comfortable with our, our, the status quo. We're comfortable just coming to church and, and hearing a, a message and singing some songs, but it doesn't impact our life. It doesn't go with us. But Paul said that's not enough for him. Status quo is not acceptable. I want to know more of Christ. And if that means that I must suffer like Christ, I want to know that so I might be made into his image, into his likeness. So the question I have for you today is, where does Jesus want to lead us? You know, songwriter, at the end of this this morning, we're going to learn a new song, and, and the songwriter writes it this way. Jesus wants to lead us to the desperate eyes and the reaching hands, to the suffering and the poor, to the ones the world has cast aside. Jesus wants us to go into all the world, to all nations, as we see here in our passage today, to, to all nations to proclaim the gospel. In James 1.27, James says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father's is to visit the orphans. Religion here is the expression of genuine faith that is pure before God is to take care of those who are less fortunate, the orphans, the widows, those who cannot take care of themselves. Today, there are over 143 million orphans around the world. 5,760 more children will become an orphan every five minutes. Every five minutes, 21 children have just become orphans due to the AIDS epidemic in Africa alone. There is a huge need to care for the orphans. Next week, we're supporting CLM, and many of us have had an opportunity to go and work with the orphans in Brazil. Brazil's an interesting country where uh, they don't like to let their children be adopted outside of Brazil, yet Brazilians don't adopt. And it is a a work of God to hear of a a Christian Brazilian family coming to CLM and adopting their children, as just happened two weeks ago, I think maybe three weeks ago, uh, with Carolini and Caroline, two beautiful girls that we had a chance to meet. But because the... uh, 
because of the need for orphans to be taken care of in Brazil alone, they've asked CLM to open the Turvo Project, and they've given them land, and it's a, a beautiful facility, um, but they just don't have people to staff it where they can fill that facility with the children. The, the uh, government-run orphanages are filled to capacity. There's, they don't have anything enough to do. They have nowhere to send all these kids. There's such a need, and that's like the, that is like that all over the world today had an opportunity in, in Kenya to work with the orphans. There were 30 kids in, a, in two 10 by 10 rooms in Kenya, in the, sl- in the Mathari slums of Nairobi. And these children, uh, they, they, they weren't even an official orphanage. They were just a couple of college students that came together and said, we want to care for the kids in the, in the, in the slums. And they're trying to provide for them. And when you go and you see those kids, I mean, it breaks your heart to see what they live with. And Jesus says this, that a pure expression of genuine faith and understanding of the gospel is to minister to these kids, to go into the world. The question is, do we believe the gospel was meant for everybody in all places at all times? Is it meant for those orphans? Doug Birdsall said that we need to remember the gospel is big enough to address all the bigness of the problems of the world in the cross. It is the cross that they need to hear. But we might need to go and feed the kids and clothe the kids and be with the kids so we can share the cross, share the story of the victory in Christ. It is very clear that that God wants us to go to the poor, to the needy. Deuteronomy, way back in the beginning, God made a provision for the poor and needy in the law. In Deuteronomy 15, he says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And later he says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. God made a provision in the law to say, take care of the poor needy. Listen to what Solomon says about the oppressed, the poor, the downtrodden. Proverbs fourteen thirty one says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors God. To oppress the poor, says you insult the poor man's maker, that God is the maker of both the poor and the rich, that we need to remember that the the downtrodden, the poor, the oppressed across the world are, are made by God. They're human beings who are made in his image, in his likeness, and they need to hear the truth of the gospel. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. In the Old Testament, we see that God had a heart for taking care of the poor, for the needy. What about Christ himself? What is his heart towards the poor? What about in the Beatitudes, Luke 6, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. That there is hope, there is a promise, that your, your state isn't going to always be like this. That there is reconciliation that is coming in Christ. And this is where it comes. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ left his heavenly estate. He came to this earth and became poor. He became even obedient unto the death on the cross so that we might have life, that we might have meaning and purpose, that we might have forgiveness of sins. Where does Jesus want us to go? He wants us to go to the poor and hurting, to those who are desperate. This morning I want to read to you briefly a a testimony of a friend of mine who I went to to school with and uh, who who did just this. He went to the poor and needy. He went to a people group who'd never heard the gospel, who's never reached by anyone. His his name's Scott Phillips, and I'm just going to, I've condensed his testimony, so if I had to jump around a little bit. Um, But he says this, I think the one word people would use to describe my life is unexpected. I don't think that any of my friends, or even myself for that matter, could have predicted that I would end up living in a place like this, the Dao Valley and the jungles of Indonesia. I grew up mostly in the suburbs of Los Angeles. My life revolved around skateboarding and good music. And Scott, that's all Scott was about. I went to the Bible school with him right at the beginning, before his transformation to Christ. And uh, I was one who looked at Scott and said, what are you even doing here? When he walked in, like, Word of Life, if you don't know, is a pretty conservative school, and they have pretty strict rules about things. And, uh, and you get written up for everything. Um, and it doesn't take much to get kicked out. And he comes walking in one day. One of the rules definitely was no tattoos, no getting tattoos or something like that. And you'd get in big trouble. And he walks in, sticks his foot up on the desk, yanks his his uh, pant leg up and says, Brad, look at this. And it was a fresh tattoo still kind of wrapped in the plastic with band-aids and stuff all over it. And I'm like, Scott, you're going to get kicked out. What are you doing? Why? I mean, like, if this is what you want to do, fine, but why are you here doing this? This is, and, and, and he says, and I mean, this is what I knew Scott as. He says, then one day in class, a Bible teacher said, if you're trusting in anything, at all to get you to heaven in addition to Jesus Christ alone and his finished work on the cross on your behalf, then you are looking straight into the face of God and telling him that what his son Jesus did on the cross isn't good enough. You are telling God that he might as well not have sent Jesus at all. Scott says that statement absolutely blew me out of my seat. I knew I'd heard stuff like that before, but it just never clicked. Now I realize that it was all about Jesus, not me. I needed to trust in what Christ had done for me, not in anything I had done in hopes of gaining his approval. Then a representative from New Tribes Mission, Dun Gordy, taught a class on tribal missions. He brought stacks of letters with him from tribal people, begging for someone to come and teach them about the Bible. He copied the letters and handed them out in class. I couldn't believe what I was reading. The letter said something, things like this, We want to know how to go to God's good place after we die. We don't want to go to the place of fire, but we have no one to teach us. Please send someone quickly before too many more of us die. One letter described the good news of eternal life as a big jar of sweet, delicious cookies that we Americans and Westerners were keeping all for ourselves because we don't want to share. What a, what a sad, this, this people group says, you have the biggest jar of cookies and you're not willing to share it with us. I mean, I think that's a sad commentary. Dun Gordy said that while we were making our plans for our lives, we also needed to consider what God would have us to do with our lives. 
But surely someone like me shouldn't go to remote places like that, I rationalize. What about my passion for skateboarding? There's no concrete in the jungle. Couldn't I just start my skate park in Los Angeles and talk to kids there about Jesus? But I kept thinking about those letters. The more I thought about it, the more it didn't seem right for for me to skateboard my life away while entire groups of people didn't have any access to the gospel. The next day after class, I talked to Dungordy about it. Do you really think that God could use me in tribal missions, I asked him. I've got a bunch of tattoos. What would tribal people or other missionaries think of that? And I grew up in the suburbs. I don't know, how the first, I don't know the first thing about surviving in remote places. He told me that tribal people have crazy tattoos too. He said that it didn't matter what I look like or where I came from, that God could use my life in tribal missions. Now, nearly 10 years later, my best friend and I are blessed to live in the remote jungles of Indonesia, bringing God's message to the Tao people group. Jeannie, my wife, is the Bible translator, and I am the Bible and literacy teacher. Neither Jeannie nor I could ever be convinced that anything out there would be more fulfilling, even running a skate park in Los Angeles, although I still put my skateboard where I pull out my skateboard whenever we go to supplies in the city. Now, the word I would use to describe my life is privileged. It has been a privilege to take the message of salvation to the Tao people of Indonesia and watch God transform their lives before our very eyes. And I, I saw Scott. I knew Scott. And the world and, and, and I looked at him and said, what a waste. He's just goofing off. What is he ever going to amount to? And right now, Scott and his wife are going to a a people group that never heard the gospel, that no person had ever been to their tribe, that there was no language written down or recorded, no Bible ever, and they're there for the last 10 years reaching an entire village, an entire group of people. Today there's over 2,500 people groups who still have yet to hear or receive the gospel. And what are we doing about it? How are we reaching those people? As I was reading that statement here this morning, going through it again, he he says, Dun Gordy printed off some of those letters. And I was like, did he really? I don't remember that. I was in that class with Scott. And, uh, and so I, I went and I had all my files right beside me. So I pulled it out and I found a copy of two of the letters. And I'd like to read those to you because I think it's, it's so important. I want to express a little bit about what, what Dun Gordy was telling us about. The, each of those 2,500 people groups have their own language, but many of them have learned an adaption of pidgin, Uh, and so they can communicate amongst themselves roughly. Each one's a little bit more of a dialect, but they can take what they've written, or maybe sometimes one person from that tribal group will leave and and learn and and come back, and they'll be um, the interpreter to the other tribes. And uh, he said he actually literally had a stack of these letters. And it was as if one tribe would, would have a missionary and they would see what was happening in that tribe and they wanted that. And so they write something like this from the village of Milan, well, somewhere in Papua New Guinea, I can't pronounce it. I want a missionary to come quickly. I solemnly say one must come quickly. I'm without having heard God's talk. In my heart is like a dark land, but you live well. It is as though I am in the place where the fire is burning. Help me. I believe God's talk is important. If you believe I should hear God's talk, then send a missionary quickly. I believe a missionary must come quickly. If you do not send one quickly, then I will see that it is the case that this God's talk of which you speak 
you speak falsely about. I wish I could be like you. Don't lie to me before God's forehead, for I really do want God's talk. Before my eyes and in my heart is like a dark land. If you think that I, that I, having not heard God's talk, should go to the place where the fire is burning, well then, just forget about what I've said. That is all. I have no more to talk about. My name is Madoi. And it's, he saw and he heard little bits. He heard fragments, but he didn't get the true message. Why? Because they need missionaries to go there to learn their, lang- their native language, to, to understand and communicate the gospel in a way that they can understand. Um, they can learn it through pigeon, but until you fully understand and be able to communicate in their own language, they're going to miss a lot of what's going on there. That's why it's so important for us to keep our, our Bible translators in prayer, like Wycliffe tri- translators and others, New Tribe Missions. Here's another one. It's a, real, a little shorter, also from Papua New Guinea. I want you three missionaries to come and live with us. You must come to clear our eyes. Our eyes are darkened. What I'm saying is representative of all of our people. We really wanted a missionary. We have asked for one many, many times all around us. And Meski, Mugumut, and even the little places have someone, but my people have no one. I want a missionary to come live here. I want a missionary to help me live right, build a good house, and hear God's talk. Our people are concerned and need God's talk. I'm not clear who God is. We are just outcasts. Who does Jesus want us to go to? To the poor, to the needy, to those the world has cast aside. What prevents us from going? Could it be that in America we are blinded by privilege? That we don't have the eyes to see the pain that's all around us? Karl Barth said this, Every Christian needs the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. That when we see the news, when we hear the reports from around the world, we must understand it from a biblical perspective. Instead, oftentimes, we just read the newspaper and we take the world's perspective as is. What's going on? What does God think about it? We're too comfortable. 1 Timothy 6, 5 through 11 says this. There are some that come imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul's writing to Timothy, a young pastor, saying, hey, look, as you're going in here, don't go into it for the money. Don't go in it to look to, to gain riches as some are doing. And I tell you, in America today, there's a group of people claiming to be Christians who are in it for the money, who are raising money and then telling people that if you believe what we say, that all your problems are going to go away, that you will be wealthy, that you will be rich, that, that all your problems will be taken care of. They say they believe this message, they they take this to the world and say, believe this message and your pigs won't die, your wife won't have miscarriages, you'll have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. All you have to do is have faith and all your problems will go away. And and they're they're preaching this called the prosperity gospel. In America, it's all over and it's taken to all over the world. And they're believing these lies about it. John Piper 
asked it this way. When was the last time that anyone ever said that Jesus is all satisfying because you drove your dream car or you have your dream house? Never. They will say, did Jesus give you that? Yes. Then I will take Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's idolatry. That's elevating gifts above the giver. You see, we, we, we have this, this message going out that says, if you wholly devote yourself to Christ, then you'll be prosperous. You'll be delivered from suffering, and you'll automatically prosper financially in all other areas of your life. But that's not what God says. God says there's a cost of discipleship. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You must leave your family. You must leave all things behind. You must follow him to the ends of the world if need be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, when, when God called us, he called us to die. We're to die to ourselves. We're not here in this world to get comfortable. This is, we're just passing through. We're citizens of heaven. We're to be storing our treasures up in heaven, not on this earth, not looking for the prosperity, the comfort of this world. We need to develop a theology of suffering. One of the uh, founders of the Lausanne Committee was talking about how his father came to the Lord after he watched his eldest daughter die and how he responded through the pain. And it says, only how I see you handle adversity and the hope you have because of your faith in the gospel, that makes the gospel desirable to me. What sets us believers apart from the world is not that we can prosper and be comfortable. It's that in spite of adversity and troubles and trials and struggles, in spite of sacrifice, we have hope and confidence that God is involved. So every time we we come into a trial, we have this decision to make. Do we blame God? which is what the world does, or do we have confidence that God is working all things together? Do we know that our God is there every moment of every day, never forgetting about us, and working all things for his glory, for his honor? And when we have that outlook, when we stare trials and sufferings in the face and say, God is good, I'm satisfied with Christ, that makes God look amazing to the world. When we are no longer blinded by privilege, but understand that I must sacrifice, I must give of myself to reach the world, then we will draw people to Christ. We don't even realize how wealthy we are in America. If you are at or just above the poverty line in America, something around the annual household income of $19,000 a year, you're considered in the top 10% wealthiest people around the world. Many of our poorest people in America are amongst the wealthiest people around the world. But yet we live in a place of comfort and materialism when we look around us and say, well, I don't have that, so I'm lacking. I'm poor. No. It's our perspective. Are we buying into the lies of materialism? Are we buying into the lies of our society? Or are we content in what God has given us? Are we willing to say, even though I don't have as much as my neighbors or I don't have as much as uh, this person, that person, I have a lot. I've been blessed by God and I'm going to use what I have to glorify God. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, it says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Let me me read that again. That doesn't sound right. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I did read it right. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Paul is writing to the Corinthians saying, the Macedonians are poor, yet they're giving abundantly, they're giving above what they can afford to support the global outreach, the missions work, to take the gospel to the farthest reaches of the world. So, what are we doing? How are we giving? How are we supporting global missions? Are we going? Are we giving so others can go? Are we supporting those who went? Is it just a a little bit? Or is it sacrificial? Are we going beyond our own means so that they can take the gospel where we might not be able to go? Now in saying this, the prosperity gospel, yes, has clouded a lot of people's views about what God's doing. It's not saying, I'm not saying up here today that having wealth is bad. John Wesley said, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. You know, we have to have the understanding that God can and will and does bless some with much so they can bless others with much. And God does bless some with little so that they can bless others with little. But we are stewards of what God has given, and we must not look at financial gain or poverty as a blessing or curse from God, but that God has put us where we are for his purpose, for his glory. The one thing that we can look at, that yes, we indeed do live in the wealthiest nation in the world, and even our poor are considered in the top 10% wealthiest people, in the world. But what we have can be used for the world to help spread the gospel. We can get involved. The gospel is spreading rapidly around the world, but the power, wealth, and influence hasn't spread in the proportion. The church is booming in China and in India and in South Korea, but in the movements where the church is exploding there, They're not able to afford the Bibles. They're not able to to put together all the stuff that they need for the churches. Many of them have to go to the churches and teach from memory or or from scraps and parts of the Bible. They don't have the whole. And we're here sitting with abundance. Many of us have many Bibles in our own house that we're not even using. And yet we have to look at how can we use our wealth and our technology to share our gifting to truly reach the whole church around the world and operate together. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? How do we then move to be global-minded, to reach the world? One thing as Lakeside we have done, and we have newly formed a missions team, and uh, just want to thank each of the members of that. Mark Pavko, Jeremiah, and Cheryl Dillon, and Joanne Zarkovaki are currently our members. 
And I uh, encourage us as a church to pray for them as they are seeking and, and, and leading us in the, the direction of who our missionaries are, how we're supporting them, how do we stay in contact with them. Support our missions team. Ask them how you can, too, be involved. Now, also I have to emphasize, again, this is a newly formed team. They're just starting, so don't have too high of expectations yet, but encourage them because this is a much-needed area, and I, I thank each one of them. So we need to pray for our missions team and ask them who our missionaries are from time to time. If you know missionaries that need support, those are the people we want to take those to and how we can pray for our missions team and our missionaries. There's a, uh, a prayer journal that's available free online, and you, might, you can order a hard copy if you'd like, but it's called Global Prayer Digest. Daily prayer for the, the, the international church, the, what's going on all over the world. You can have each and every day pray for a different people group. This month they're highlighting Thailand. And each day you're going to get a little bit of a different people group and what their struggles with and how uh, the Dalai Lama and is uh, clouding their view of, of Christianity and how we need to pray for the missionaries to be able to ex- uh, explain the gospel to them. We need to pray that God will open our eyes and our hearts to the needs around the globe and how we can be involved. And then we also need to pursue. We need to pursue supporting missionaries. If we're supporting missions, the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we support the different missionaries, when we uh, invest in their lives and communicate with them, we can see what's going on and how they're growing and how God's challenging them and how God will challenge us. Pray and pursue short-term missions. I think it would be great if all of us could go on some form of short-term missions. The Mormons have uh, a, a rule that as soon as graduating is it college, they have to go on two-year missionary journey. Every Mormon has to go on two years missionary journey. And, and, and they're going out to the world with not, without the, the right gospel, without the whole gospel. We have the truth, and yet we oftentimes don't do anything about it. How are we reaching the world? Pray about long-term missions. Pursue them. What if God is calling you to go? Are you willing to go? Romans ten fourteen says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are those two people groups from those letters in Papua New Guinea going to hear the gospel unless somebody goes to them? How are the people in the 1040 window going to hear the gospel unless somebody... Is trained up here and will go and learn Arabic so they can communicate the gospel in their native language. Are we willing to say, yes, I will go, whatever it takes, I will go? Tim Newfield of the, the band Starfield wrote a song, I Will Go. And I think we're going to, as I ask the praise team to begin coming up, and I'll close in prayer here in a second, but um, the chorus goes like this, I will go, I will go, I will go, Lord, send me to the world, to the lost, to the poor and hungry. Take everything I am. I'm clay within your hands. I will go, I will go, send me. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, thanking you that, Lord, you are the Lord of the harvest. Lord, that you are the God who sees the world. 
Lord, that you have a heart and a passion for every person on this globe, Lord. The poor, the needy, the outcast, Lord. And I pray that as a church, as Lakeside, Lord, we won't be blind or, uh, to the, the needs, Lord, but we, we will see the needs, Lord. We have the Bible in our one hand and the, and the news in our other, Lord, that we might see the world through your eyes and that, Lord, that we would then impact the world, Lord. I pray that today, Lord, if there's anyone here today, Lord, who feels you tugging on their heart to go to global outreach missions, Lord, to reach a people group who have never heard your word, Lord, that you'll raise them up, that you'll put that confidence in them, Lord, that, that, that continual fervor that you put in my friend Scott, Lord, that took this guy who the world thought, and many of us in the church thought, was a waste of time, Lord, and how today, 10 years later, he's impacting an entire people group for you. Lord, we know that through the power of your spirit, we can do mighty things, and we pray that we can impact the globe because of your whole gospel, that we understand who you are and what you've done. Lord, I pray that as we sing the song, our hearts will reflect and respond. Lord, that indeed we are asking and praying this as a prayer that we would go. In Jesus' name, amen.